0: I want to really quickly before we uh, turn into our message for today, and I do this only because I actually think it has something to do with with the word that we're going to come to, uh, or the the text or the uh, subject for today. I want to really quickly just spend a few minutes, uh, Glenn did a bit of this, but just bringing at least one thing back from uh, this past week of Pastors Conference. Now, to be quite honest, I intend to bring a number of things back over time. Uh, just sort of piece by piece, because that, one of the biggest things that happened for me is when you listen to a guy like Nick Ripken, which if you don't know who he is, uh, look him up. If you don't know where those books are, look them up. There's actually a movie. If you'd like to watch the movie, uh, I'll always tell you the book is far better than any movie I'll ever be, which, to be fair, I haven't seen the movie, so I can't say that for sure on this time. But I'm pretty confident because the books are always better. Um, but, but get acquainted with this. But the, the, one of the biggest things that happened uh, is in a setting like that for me is is just a reminder, and I've known this, but a reminder of how desperately uh, my perspective needs to be changed. My, the way I look at things needs to be changed. Uh, as a believer... One of the things that we know that changes, right, uh, if anyone is in Christ, right, isn't that what Paul wrote to the Corinthians? If anyone is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. And we kind of know that in terms of, and even some things we talk about today, we know that in terms of like, you know, stop doing these things, start doing these things, look more like a Christian, do more things like that. But part of what has to change too is just a mindset, like a perspective of how you think of things. And to kind of illustrate what I mean by this, I just want to real quickly bring to you uh, a, a way that I think we often... Given our Western mindset, Glenn referred to this, uh, given our Western mindset, we look at a story Jesus said, and don't always maybe come to the right end of it because of what we think it says. So if you were to read uh, Luke chapter 15, anybody know any stories that are in Luke chapter 15? There's actually three parables told in Luke chapter 15. It's the entirety of the chapter, three parables that Jesus said. I'll give you a clue. They all have to do with being lost. Okay, one is the prodigal son, the lost son. It's actually the third one he said. Anybody know the other two stories? The lost sheep and the lost coin. The lost sheep is the first story. Now, if I were to ask you, I, don't, I probably shouldn't take time to do this, so I'll just quickly go through this. If I were to ask you to tell us the story of the lost sheep, most of us would understand, that uh, would, would say something like along these lines, that Jesus told the story to illustrate how, what a heart he has for the lost, which is true, and, and that if it's like he said, it here, it's, picture this. It's like a man who had 100 sheep, and he's on his way back in, and he realizes one of them is lost, and he leaves the 99 to go find the one, because the one sheep means so much to him. And we may get, you know, we may get, I, if this is my viewpoint. So if this, is, if this is like feeling like I'm being too critical of, of us, I, I guess you can reject what I'm saying. But we may get like this deep into that and say, you know, that really demonstrates God's heart for the lost people. But my question for you this morning is, as Moses read that story, where did he leave the 99 sheep? See, most of us probably have in mind that this shepherd was fairly responsible and took his 99 sheep and took them in and put them in the pen and closed the door and then realized, I have one lost, and so I need to go back and find that one, and I'm going to go out and, and, sac- and, and give sacrifice the shepherd's time to go find the lost sheep. There is great sacrifice in the story, but it's not with the shepherd, actually. As someone said... The story actually that Jesus said, he said, the shepherd leaves the 99 in open country, meaning he's not back to town yet. He's bringing his sheep or his goats or his camels or whatever he's herding that day, and he's bringing them back, and he realized one is lost. He leaves the 99 in open country and goes and finds the one. Now, Nick Ripken shared this with us, and he said, if I share this story, and he has done this, if I share this story in the cultures where I'm at, which are Bedouin cultures or cultures who, this really does happen, there's people really out herding sheep or cows or goats or camels or something, if I tell this story to them, you know what'll happen? They look at me and they say, that's the most ridiculous story I've ever heard. Do you know Why? Because to them, if you leave the 99 in open country, there's two things that are sure to happen. One of two things are going to happen. They will either be eaten by wild beasts or stolen by other people. Like those 99 sheep or goats or camels or whatever, they're gone. They're gone. In fact, many of them, he said he referenced a couple different places around the world he's been, different examples, whether it's goats or sheep or camels, but many of them said, if we had a shepherd that would do that, would take our sheep out, and on the way back in, leave 99, and go get the other one that's lost, we would beat him or potentially kill him because he just let everything go that was ours, and he lost it. Remember at the end of that story, Jesus said, that there is more rejoicing in heaven over one person that needs repentance and comes back and is found than the 99 who did not need repentance. When I talk about readjusting how we think of things, we have to understand when Jesus tells that story, the great sacrifice involved is with the shepherd to some degree, but it's the 99. Are we okay? Here's the question I want to ask you this morning. Are we okay if Jesus says... In his mind, he is willing to sacrifice the 99 that are already saved for the one that is not saved. Do you see how that's different? Because my friends, you're here in church, you're a believer, you are part of the 99. Are you okay if Jesus the shepherd is willing to sacrifice the 99 who are saved in order to find the one that is not saved? Because I can tell you, Every one of us in our humanity, in our Western mindset, will call that just like the people in the Eastern mindset. That is the most ridiculous story you've ever told. You have 99. You should protect them. You should make sure they're okay. You should keep them safe. You should be responsible. And Jesus says, for those that did not need to repent, I'm willing to sacrifice them to find one that needs it. That, I believe, and I think you'll agree with me, is a completely different perspective than what we typically approach Christianity with. It's in the Bible. I bet most of us have read that story at least once. Probably lots of times. And somehow have never, ever, ever read that out of that story. It may seem backwards, we began this whole second part of the series with the fact that uh, uh, where there's a local church, and we talked about the local church and the role of the local church and how that works. And I didn't make this explicit, but in some way, next, last week we, we came and said, well, well, the reality is if we want the local church to look like it's supposed to look, the local church is really made up of families, right? Like there's groups, there's, there's, there's groupings inside of the local church, and if the local church is supposed to do what it's supposed to do and look like what it's supposed to look like and do all those things, then the family has to look like what it's supposed to do. So last week we focused on the family, on marriage, what God wants to do with the husband and wife and children, and what the home is supposed to be like. And if, you were, if you're if you following this, this kind of backwards un, unwinding here, the reality is our Families are made up of what? Individuals, right? We have mom and dad and children or whatever it might be. I mean, doesn't matter if your family looks exactly like that. I mean, our families look like all kinds of stuff, but they're made up of individuals. And if we want our families to represent uh, what they're supposed to represent according to the Bible, which is husband being Jesus and wife being the Church of Jesus Christ, if we want that to be true, then the excuse me, the individuals that make up those families. So there's some things that have to be true about them, right? Because it doesn't just happen. I, I, I can tell you, I can speak very clearly. I can't speak for the, on the women's side of things. I can speak very clearly on the men's side of things. We, I don't just naturally love like Jesus loved. I don't just naturally act like Jesus did with the church with my wife. Something has to change in me for that to be true. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Unfortunately, and, and quite frankly, many times it doesn't happen like it ought to so today, we're going to talk about the, what, the, a section in our, in our statement of faith and practice called personal discipleship. And what this really means is the way that we disciple ourselves, the way that we ourselves are are being led and changed by the Holy Spirit, so that we are how we're supposed to be, so that our families are like they're supposed to be, so that our church is like they're supposed to be. Now, I want to say something right up front, and that is the fact that they're still all held together. So when we talk about how we are discipled, the reality is that often happens in the context of our family. I would tell you it happens the best in the context of our family, right? Like, how can I teach anybody about forgiveness if I'm not ever close enough to somebody or love somebody enough that they hurt me, that they need forgiveness, right? It's pretty empty, I can teach all day long about forgiveness if, no, if I'm never close up to somebody that, that has actually done something to me that requires forgiveness. How can I talk about commitment? Right? That's something we believe that, that we should be committed. Right? Be committed to the local church. Be committed to your family. Be committed to Christ. How can I talk about that if I've never actually been in a position where I really want to leave but I chose not to? I mean, that has what I just said. By the way, has huge implications for how we view the local church. By the way, I'm talking about individuals that make up families that make up churches. But it doesn't take a genius to look around at our churches and realize that we have about this much right to talk about real commitment when the first time something goes like we don't like in our churches, we're like, I'm gonna go down and check the one out down the road. Commitment means nothing if there's never been a time that I've said I really don't wanna be here, but I'm choosing to be here. So all of our personal discipleship honestly happens in the context of a family family if there's one around us, and then in the context of a local church. There's things that, that develop that God does in me to grow me in him, only in the context of my family or only in the context of this body here. It doesn't happen with me by myself. So when I call it personal discipleship, I'm not referring to, hey, go out in the wilderness by yourself and figure out how, to, what, how God has changed you. I can tell you, I mean, you're still not gonna get 100%, I, I can assure you that, even though you think you might, but even, I can tell you, you can do that and those will all be empty things. Like, it's really great to be, it's really easy to be a nice person when no one's around, right? It's really easy to love people when you're not around anybody. At least we think so. Here's what we say in our statement of belief and practice. We're going to start with this. This is going to guide us all the way through. By the way, this is going to be a two-week sermon, a little segment, because I can't get all of it in one week. You'll thank me for that, I hope, during lunchtime. We believe that life under the lordship of Christ will have outward evidence you know, way back in the statement of theology, we talked about what salvation is, and we talked about the fact that that's an, that's what ha- that's something that happens inside of here. That when we begin to trust in Jesus Christ, when we cry out to Him, when we believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, we confess that He is Lord. Now that's sort of outward, but there's things that happen inside of us that that's what me- what it takes for us to be saved. That's what it means to have salvation when we trust in Christ. Well, that's inside of here, right? So we say, based on what we believe about salvation, that we think that the believer, the person who is a believer in Jesus Christ, that that Lordship will be given some kind of outward evidence. Like, we should be able to tell in some way. Now, we all know the truth, right? None of us nails this perfectly. If that's not surprising, I mean, apply this back to last week. I hope you understood this last week. When I taught about marriage and what marriage should look like, like, very few, if any, of our marriages actually look like that as fully as they ought to. I'm, th- that was not a message to say, like, if you're not there, like, we've all failed. It was to say, this is the standard. Today, again, like, our lives should display evidence that Jesus is Lord of our life, and we don't get it right every single time. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. That doesn't mean that there's not an ongoing process of sanctification that happens in us that makes us more Christ-like. All right. Let's get into the Word because we can, we can, I can make this case right from Romans chapter 12. Paul does a fantastic job in the book of Romans in leading us through what it means to be a believer, why it is that we can be saved, all this theological stuff. And in Romans chapter 12, he comes to this. In light of all these things, he says, I appeal to you, very first verse, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The previous sections were all about the mercies of God. I appeal to you because of the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you want to worship God, let me just paraphrase for a bit. If you want to worship God, then offer your body to him to use as he wants. That is what he will accept. That is what is acceptable worship. That is what true spiritual worship is. Not singing lots of great songs. Not, by the way, as much as I enjoy having a, a, a big response, and I agree with you, Cheryl, I'd love for them to be more passionate. I'd love for people to feel free to raise their hands. I'd love for you to be more responsive, if you, if you want to be, to saying amen. and, and But as much as I love that, You can do that all day long, but if your heart, your life is not yielded to him as a living sacrifice, it's not worship that he accepts. That's when the prophet Isaiah speaks to us and says, your words come out, but your heart is far from me. I appeal to you to present your bodies as a whole, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. I need to get to verse 2. Verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And oftentimes, at that, that verse 2, we tend to focus on the first part of that verse, which is a good part of the verse, so I'm not against that. But we tend to look at that part and say, We need to not be conformed to the world. We need to be transformed and all that stuff what I'm pointing us to in a life that's marked, uh, has outward evidence, is that has, has the marks of Jesus Christ on it, is the second part, is that we have a sincere desire to discern, to find out what the will of God is, and to do it. To know what God's will is, and to do it. That's the first mark I'm going to bring to you, that is, uh, that is what the outward evidence of a life under the Lordship of Christ looks like. The personal discipleship is that we honestly, sincerely, not just when we have to, not just when we're drugging, in, not just, again, the visual I gave you last week, like gets as close as I can to the, to the fence, but, to, but still be okay with God. Not that, but that we sincerely want to know what does God want from me? And I'm going to do it to know and to do God's will. Primarily today, I hope you're okay with this. Primarily today, and even some of next week, I want to just read scripture to you because if, I don't know if you're surprised by this or not, but Scripture actually has fairly, uh, several fairly lengthy lists and kinds of things that say, hey, here's what your life should look like if you're a believer. So instead of me telling you my ideas, I think it's far better for me to tell you what God's ideas were originally. Now, let me do something before I get to that, though. I want you to stop for a moment. The, the, the greatest tendency following a message like today or next week's message is for us to look at sort of the, the lists that are given there in Scripture and to say, huh, This is what I got to do. Here's my list. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna buckle down and I'm gonna have more of these things present in my life. And and I, if I don't see if I don't see patience in my life, boy, I'm gonna be more patient. If I don't if I don't have a response in my life, like I can, oh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna make I'm gonna fabricate I'm gonna make this happen. I want to remind us of some words that Jesus said before we go into anything else. These are familiar words, but let me read them to you this morning. John chapter 15, Jesus said, it's in the middle of his discourse, so we're kind of jumping in, but Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now, I'm going to stop for a minute because this is where we find ourselves. We're preparing to hear a message today about personal discipleship, what our lives look like marked by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You're here today, most of you, probably not all of you, I'm sure, but most of you have accepted Jesus Christ. You're qualifying in this part where he says, you're already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. But before we go any further in looking at what that life looks like, lest we get the mistaken idea that I'm responsible for making my life look like that, or that I can do better in making my life look like that, let's keep reading because he says this, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. "'Abide in me, and I in you. "'As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself "'unless it abides in the vine, "'neither can you unless you abide in me. "'I am the vine, you are the branches.'" If you didn't hear it the first time, he'll remind you again. "'Jesus is the vine, you and I are the branches. "'Whoever abides in me,' Jesus says, "'and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, "'for apart from me you can do nothing. "'If anyone does not abide in me, "'he's thrown away like a branch and withers, "'and the branches that are gathered, "'thrown in the fire, and they're burned.'" If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Do you really know what the word abide means? I mean, it's like the sixth or seventh time I've read it already in this text. Abide, remain, stay. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Friends, brothers, and sisters, I want to remind you this morning. I'll be reading just a couple of sections here about some things that the Bible clearly says our lives should look like when we have Jesus in us, when the Holy Spirit of God is in us, when we are becoming new creations. But I can tell you, The answer is not for you to scrabble harder, to try harder, to do better at making your life fit that list. The answer is for you to do everything you can to remain in Christ, to abide in Him, to know your Savior, Jesus Christ, and to know His love to know his heart for you to know his heart when you do that by the way you'll you'll quickly discover his heart for other people too but to remain in him if i can tell you i want to be careful how i say this because every people are different and i don't want to i don't want to paint everyone in the same box but if i can tell you if you abide in jesus christ these things i'm going to read Even this thing we did with Cheryl this morning, we don't have to manufacture or force ourselves to do that or remind ourselves that, oh, we got to do that, yeah. It happens because we have the spirit of the living Christ inside of us, and we want to do that for him. We believe that the best way we can honor him is to do that, is to have the ready testimony of what he has done on our lips. Is to have the joy of the Lord as our strength. Is to have, well, let's just read. Let's flip over to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 13, Galatians 5, because it's a good place for us to start with this context, this, this discussion. For you were called to freedom, brothers. We've been to this place. We, we, did, a, we did a whole study of theology on what salvation is and how, uh, how Jesus has set us free from sin and from what we've been put in bondage by. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That sounds a lot like the theme of this year, so it's a good reason for us to bring that in today. You can go a long way in summarizing what God wants you to do by loving your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And then he says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And here's where we get to the list I was referring to. We have what we could call the bad list, if you want to use it that way. And we're going to get to the good list, if you want to use it that way. Again, I remind you, he said the same thing. I went to John 15 to remind you to abide in Christ. He actually says the same thing. You should walk by the Spirit. That's the same thing as abiding in Christ, that you have that flowing Spirit inside of you so that these things in the first list will not be true and the second list will be true that the life you're living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ is marked by this. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. They're plain. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. Enmity is, uh, is uh, bitter feelings against, each, against other people. Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Ugly list. I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, on the flip side, the fruit of the Spirit Remember, Jesus said, if you abide in him, you'll produce fruit. That's, in fact, what God wants. That's what brings glory to him is that your life produces fruit. This is, this is the outward evidence. It's the same, same thing I'm talking about, the outward evidence of a life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If you belong to Jesus, if you're abiding in him, you have died to yourself. You've crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And he ends with a closing exhortation, which I'll put up on the screen for you. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I'm a little worried quite frankly that some of you may find yourself in the place that I find myself sometimes in an effort to memorize this list of the fruits of the Spirit an effort to get it in my head that I'm so worried about getting the words in and when I read it and when I read it maybe you were thinking about oh I know all these I can name them all up but I forget what they actually are I forget that it's not about knowing what it says it's about whether they're evident in my life it's about whether they find itself actually taking root and I can tell you when I'm not abiding in Christ those things aren't evident in my life my family can, can, can feel that, can know that. Whether you all know it or not, it affects you as well. Those things are not present. Again, I'm guessing you've heard sermons preached on this, so I don't want to preach that same sermon again. But I won't shy away from pointing you to say, please look at those words again and please look at them carefully. A life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ is marked by things like, like it's evident on the outside, by things like love. Not love for yourself, love for others. Joy. Peace. All the worrying and the striving the concerns I have. The outward expression of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life is a peace, an open-handedness that says, God, I trust you. Patience. If you get the irony, I want to move that past that one pretty quickly, mostly because of the necessity of it being worked in my life. Kindness. Basic kindness. Isn't it sad? Isn't it sad that one of the primary criticisms leveled against Christians from those on the outside is often boils down to a lack of basic kindness? Like we sometimes just struggle to be kind to people. We are critical or harsh or holier than thou or arrogant or. You name it. Kindness. Can I remind you again? I think it's absolutely ludicrous for us to assume that we will show any of these traits to the outside, unsaved, corrupt, against God world if we're not showing them in our house, the home, the people we live with every day. Or in the church we go to that we spend a lot of time with every week. That's crazy, right? How am I going to love the worst sinners out there if I can't love the sinners that are here with me every Sunday? That is all of us, by the way, right? Goodness. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Last week I shared this illustration or reminded you that we approach our marriages like contracts and they should actually be approached like covenants. And I talked about it in that context. And my wife this morning in Sunday school just drug that over and exploded that out into our whole relationship with, with Christ. And we often re- approach that like a contract too, right? In the context of, of Malachi, the discussion of Malachi, uh, uh, God says, you guys have spoken against me. And they're like, oh, we've never spoken against you. And he says, yeah, you do. When you complain about how the arrogant and evil people are blessed or seem to be prosperous and just keep on going on and nothing happens to them, you complain about You murmur, and you you assassinate my characters, basically. You come against the character that I have. God says that. And we talked about how that reflects our contract type of thinking with God. I will follow you, God, as long as you hurt those that are not following you and bless me because I am following you. It's a contract. As long as when I begin to see them thriving, even though I know they're evil, then I'm done. Faithfulness. Faithfulness recognizes that I'm entering a covenant. It does not matter what anybody else does. When I covenant with God that I will follow Him because of what Jesus has done for me, I will do that no matter what. Gentleness. Self control. Friends, you don't need, you don't need a law. You don't need rules. I don't mean we're going to get rid of them, by the way, because God has commandments. He said, in fact, you show me you love me by obeying my commandments. But you don't need them when the Holy Spirit is inside of you producing this stuff out of your life. We believe that the believer will discern and a- apply God's principles in their daily lives. Let me read one more passage to you. It's, in my estimation, in my opinion, one of the most fantastic single sentences in the entire Word of God, mostly because it's from Paul, and Paul has this amazing ability to string together what we would call about five sentences and make them into one, never-ending, covering-everything kind of statement. But you'll find this in the book of Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14. This is one sentence and it encompasses so much of the discipleship that we ourselves are to walk in. For the grace of God, he says, the grace of God has appeared Jesus has appeared. He brought salvation for all people, and he's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who were zealous for good works. I could preach to you for a whole week out of this, those verses. In fact, I did that once for revival meetings. I preached a whole week out of it. These verses, far more I can cover this morning. But the point of it is that God's grace has appeared to us. And it is far more than a giant eraser that goes, when we go, oops, I messed up, that he takes away the things. Now it does do that. I'm, I'm, so, I'm such a huge fan of God's grace. I need it every day of my life. But the grace of God has appeared not just to bring us salvation, not just to forgive us when we've made mistakes, but the grace of God has appeared so that it might train us, or you could substitute the word discipline because they're the exact same word in the New Testament, train us or discipline us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live godly, upright lives right now in the midst of the corrupt generation in which we live. God's grace did not just come to pick you up after you sinned, but it came to help you say no to it to start with. And it trains us. It disciplines us. That's the word Aaron talked about during our sharing time. It trains us. It, you know, it's such an awful thing that most of the times when we use the word discipline, we automatically uh, get, get drugged to this place where we t- think about correction, like, like hurt, painful correction. Now, that is involved in discipline. That is involved in training. But there's all kinds of discipline. For example, in in the sports realm, we can learn from that because we recognize it takes discipline if you want to be good at the sports you're doing. You say no to things like staying up late, like eating food that's unhealthy. You say no to them. You discipline yourself. You train yourself. And God's Word tells us that the grace of God has appeared to train us, to discipline us, to help us practice good discipline so that we are godly and upright right here, right now. We live the right way right now. Real quickly, I'm going to end by just covering what I would tell you are sort of the main core biblical disciplines from God's word that should find evidence in our life. Now, this is about as practical as I'm going to get all morning. I don't think a single one of these will be a surprise to any of you, by the way. I don't think anything... I, don't, I, I would be shocked if one of these would be like, well, I never thought of that before. So it's a reminder to you. These are the disciplines of a godly life that I can tell you unequivocally come out of God's word. We see them everywhere, over and over again. We can start with just with the book of Acts. We're going to find every one of these. You know what they are. Reading and studying the Bible. If we say that a person whose life is marked by the lordship of Jesus Christ has a goal of knowing what God's will is and doing it, the first place you should start with that is reading God's word because it gives us what his will is, revealed to all mankind. This is what God wants. It's amazing that this does happen, how often people say, I have no idea what God wants from me, and they have not picked this up to see. There's actually a, a, really a lot in here. Now, mine tends to be pretty fat because it's got a lot of extra stuff in it. Yours may not be quite as fat as that, but there's a lot of stuff in there that God says, hey, this is what I want from you. If you want to know God's will for everybody, now, there's, there is some specific will things that God speaks, uh, that God gives to you, like directly, maybe, or like, I don't want to say that, like is uniquely to you. You know, we're not all doing the exact same things. But the general will of God, I'm not getting into the right theological terms. It's not about theology here anyway is that there's words here for all of us and we have to read and study it to know what that is. So we should know the Bible. Uh, someday I, I hope to preach a message uh, that, uh, that, that's based off what Nick Ripken shared. Uh, resurrection DNA is what he called it. He looked at the groups that thrived under persecution and uh, as opposed to the groups that folded under persecution because he saw evidence of both in the, in, the, in the worlds he was in. And among those things, he listed about eight or nine things, I think. Among those, one of those things is that they know the Bible. People that, the, the groups that thrived under persecution knew the Bible. I don't have time to tell you this story, but it's so amazing. They had a youth convention in Russia. They brought all these youth together. If you've read the book, you know the story, and I'm probably not going to say it word for it, but they had a youth convention in Russia. And while they were there at the convention, these were people that did not have Bibles because it was illegal to have them, right? While they were there, as a group, they decided that the week that they were together, that they were going to recreate as much of the, of the Gospels, the four Gospels that they could, and as much as their songs that they could, the, like the songs that they sing, in, in, like indigenous songs, their songs they sing, their, their language songs. Now, Nick tells us that he was told by the, a person that was, there's one of the youth there, because he went and talked to them later at, at, after that happened. They recreated the four Gospels, I believe, Glenn, I'm, did you, I think it was six mistakes, they made six mistakes in recreating Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as a group. Now, how many of you want to say, I do a really good job of the discipline of reading and studying my Bible? Right? Very obvious in scripture, Jesus himself does this all the time, praying and fasting that's called being dependent upon God and if it's not part of what trains us in our lives there's not going to be a whole lot of outward evidence of Jesus in us once again Jesus words you abide in me anyone who does this is my paraphrase anyone who does not abide in me can do nothing because apart from me you can do nothing So if you want to display outward evidence of Jesus in you and you're not abiding in him, you're not praying, you're not depending on him, you're not fasting, you're not relying on him. I'm sorry. I don't think we'll see it. I believe very clearly in the book of Acts and other places in scripture we see that a discipline, and this is a discipline, this is a discipline, is to have fellowship with other believers. I get I get that people are different than you and they don't all see things the same way. and They have different understandings of things and that sometimes they just kind of grind you. I get that. They do me too. I mean, none of you, right? None of you. Other people out there do. <laughs> it is a discipline to say, I must be connected to the body of Christ. I must have fellowship with the body of Christ for that is what helps keep me where I need to be. We have, it's one of our distinctives as Anabaptist, and I believe we have lost it in large regards, this idea of reading, interpreting, applying scripture in community. We do it individually because that's the culture we live in. We have, we think it's perfectly okay to say, well, I read my Bible this way. And you could say, well, I read my Bible this way. And we're all happy. I don't think that's how things operate there's a discipline of fellowship with other believers it involves yes good joyous fellowship we love those things it also involves difficult things like saying hey i'm not sure these things in your life are matched up and opening yourself up to them saying to you hey you know funny you bring that up because i saw this the other day that you did and i was i I thought that was probably not a very good fruit for a christian again bound by what what we read in here it is a discipline to have fellowship with other believers. Let me just mention the last one: witnessing to non-believers. We talked; I referred to this earlier. But we see over and over again. I, you know, maybe I don't. I don't really wish this, but if you understand what I say when I say this, I wish I could tell you that this wasn't true in Scripture. But over and 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 over again, I see in God's Word that when someone comes to Christ and comes to know Him, they can't. Excuse my phrase, shut up about it. I, I believe it happens through one of the primary outward markers that Jesus is in us. That there's witnessing happening, that there's, there's 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 this there's this authentic, default, natural way that we, wherever we are, if someone doesn't know Jesus, that it comes out of us. You should get to know this Jesus. It will make a difference in your life. Here's what happened in mine. And it doesn't have to be grand stories. Sometimes we think we have to have this amazing story to tell. <clears throat> I'm convinced most times, actually, people are more affected by the little things in their lives that we see this was God, this was Jesus that did this. Because it's the ongoing evidence. Anyway. I got to close. I will close. We were laughing about this at our pastor's conference because there's a bunch of pastors there and everyone laughs every time time a pastor says, in conclusion, because they all know it's going to go another 15 minutes still at least. Aaron, you read these verses or some of these verses from Hebrews chapter 12. You stopped just before who I was going to read, so I'm going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 12 just to remind us these things take work these things take work. They don't come effortlessly. They're not natural to you and I in our flesh. They take work to read and study God's word and to pray, to shove aside all the distractions and to pray and to fast, to go without eating. That takes work. I don't like doing it because I like to eat food. It takes work to continually say I'm committed and dedicated to the body of Christ. I will have fellowship with them. I will, <clears throat> I will connect with them and open myself up to them and speak into their life. And I will witness to non-believe. All that takes work. It's discipline. And Hebrews chapter uh, 12, Aaron, thank you for reading the earlier verses there. It, but it says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's not fun. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I'll never forget when Daniel Henderson spoke to the pastor's conference a long time ago. to talk about prayer. And he said, he, said he, he had gotten in the habit of getting up to, uh, for a prayer meeting uh, that happened at like 5 every morning or something. Or 5 once a week uh, uh, at five o'clock in the morning. And one morning he woke up and he was tired and he was just like, I don't wanna go to this. And he just said, Lord, how long do I have to keep going to this prayer meeting? And he said, just like like that, immediately, the Lord dropped a thought in his head and said, well, Daniel, how long are you gonna keep on breathing? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasing, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. But I want to get to these verses, because if you're sitting here today thinking, oh, let me remind you, abide in Jesus. Don't try to produce the fruit. Abide in Jesus, and the fruit will produce. Excuse me. The fruit will be produced. But then let me close with these words to encourage you. Knowing that discipline, training yourself, does not feel good at the time, but will produce a harvest, because God doesn't ever lie about those things, will produce a harvest. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Would you stand, please, this morning? God... I pray with everything I have in me this morning that the verses we read, the text we read, the Bible as it spoke to us this morning, it was not a thing of heaviness, not a thing of, of, of weighing us down, but a thing of encouraging us, of reminding us, yes, this is hard. Yes, it takes discipline. Yes, I have to be committed. Yes, it's not what my flesh actually really wants. But yes, it is so worth it. It produces the fruit of our lives that you want to see, that glorifies you and honestly brings joy and brings peace and brings goodness and kindness and love and gentleness and all those things and self-control. And I don't know a single one of us here this morning that doesn't want more of that God that would say no to that, that would say, I don't want those things in my life. I'd rather be grumpy. I'd rather be short with everyone. It doesn't work like that God. So here we are. Your word has encouraged us. Help us, Father. May the word, may your spirit use the word this morning to lift up our drooping hands That we would say, God, oh, that your grace would work in me. That I might train myself to be godly today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day. That it would be evident to everyone around that I have Christ in me. That I'm keeping in step with the Spirit. That our knees that are weak so often would be strengthened. Would not be feeble. that there would be straight paths before us, (laughs) that we might proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Not only that we might be healed, that we might be the ones that produce fruit to the glory of your name, God. Thank you. We recognize this requires (laughs) the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we receive you gladly today, Holy Spirit. If we have submitted to Christ we receive you gladly today. We give you lordship of our life. God, as we have time together over a meal to eat, as we have time together even afterwards to do what is the most joyful thing we could ever do, and that's to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ by observing communion, may it be a blessing to you. We know it'll be a blessing to us. May it be a blessing to you. May you receive it. May your hands be clean and our hearts be pure before you. May our souls not be lifted up to another, but to you, God of Jacob.